This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Levy Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the show, we'll also welcome Joe Spragans, director of the Mississippi Department of Marine Resources. Director Spragans and the MDMR have made it their mission to protect, enhance, and conserve Mississippi's marine interests. We're going to talk with him about aquatic wildlife in our state, from the Gulf Coast to simple wetlands. Also, Dr. Major's always on hand, ready for pet questions. You can email the show as well by sending it to animals at mpbonline.org. And if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursdays, it repeats every Saturday mornings at 6. So good morning, Libby. You're still reporting to us from your vacation out in Oregon. So what have you been experiencing this past week? Oh, uh, cooling weather. Uh, I can tell that it's turning into fall here in the West. So, and I hope you're beginning to feel a little of that in Mississippi. I don't know. might be a little too early yet. Uh, I just came back inside because it's still 45 degrees outside. But that said, I've got scrub jays and black-capped chickadees and juncos calling out there. Uh, the most fun this week, I've been watching California quail. Uh, one of the places that I like to walk um, is along the edge of a big vacant field. And so they've got lots of cover out there. And I'm assuming lots of food. They're, you know, primarily seed eaters. But what's different about these little California quail from than from our Bob White quail in Mississippi, these guys have a little plume on their head, which is um, just slightly adorable. They're, uh, as they um, bob along, you know, they like to walk a lot. So they're in little cubbies, family groups right now still th- this time of year. Uh, several families will get together into bigger cubbies to make it through the winter together. But they're really fun to watch. I, I was um, walking along the edge of the field a couple of days ago, and three females flew up on the top of a of just a plain old wooden fence and started walking along that wooden fence right by me. I was so close I couldn't use the binoculars on them. And I didn't seem to I didn't seem to bother them at all. They all looked at me a little and made some sounds. You know, they have their own language and so it's it's um it's fun to kind of be close enough to hear them talking to each other and I suppose they were saying, Yeah, she's okay. So anyway, because they, they didn't fly away, so I got good looks at them, and that was fun. But it made me think about our Bob White quail in Mississippi with a little sadness. Uh, it used to be such a common bird that we heard often and rarely hear them now. I don't know how many of our listeners um, are fortunate enough to hear Bob White quail. And uh, maybe somebody will call us if, they, if they've been hearing quail but um, I miss that sound. Their the numbers 
are um, decreasing through all of the range, and it was a very large range. Um, northern bobwhite quail is what we have in Mississippi and um, most of the eastern half of the United States. And they've been widely commercialized, I guess you would say. There are quail farms and They've been raised for food for quite a while and um, have been introduced all over the world. So I, f I feel like it's a shame that our native populations are doing poorly, even as um, the birds are spread around the planet, really. These California quail are more common. Uh, they don't have nearly as um, interesting a call, I don't think. The little bobwhite call is very endearing. Although I've, what I've read is that um, all the species in that, in, of the quail have um, really interesting calls that they use for different types of threats and different types of um, food. And so um, they talk to each other quite a lot. Uh, and good to report that uh, <clears throat> here in Mississippi, the at least overnights have been uh, somewhat cooler. <clears throat> and also oh, I, when, when I took my walk yesterday afternoon, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, it seemed like it was um, maybe right near 90, but I guess when we had all that 100-degree weather, we've all adapted, and now 90 feels kind of nice. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how that happens. <laughs> so uh, how long are you out uh, in, out in the Pacific Northwest? I think we'll be here at least another two or three weeks. All right. We're quite excited. Well, we always enjoy hearing, uh, you know, you can't get much farther apart, I guess, maybe if we were on the East Coast, but that's certainly a, another part of the country. So we appreciate uh, getting the updates of what you're seeing and doing out there and uh, wish you uh, um, that you enjoy the rest of your vacation. Looking forward, though, to having you back here with us uh, in the near future. And um, I will mention Paul's out fishing in the Gulf right now. And so I'm, I'm very interested in what Dr. Sproggins has got to say and um, – Paul says he's going to listen to the podcast when he gets back, but he's he's um, trying to get another salmon today, so All he's right. busy in the in the salt water. Uh, Dr. Major, as usual, has joined us from his clinic in Jackson. Good morning, Dr. Major. <clears throat> you know, we always want to take good care of our pets, and but sometimes uh, they can get injured or wounded. So let's talk a little bit about what a pet owner should do when that happens. Uh, first of all, I would imagine you want to try to get it into your vet as soon as possible. Um, but um, are, are painkillers that uh, humans use safe for our pets? You know, this is an interesting question. Uh, certainly, uh, what you first said, as far as injuries such as a broken leg or hit by a car or dog fight, certainly you need to get it in to see your vet as soon as possible, depending on the wound. But uh, it's better not to use uh, the human medications uh, from the standpoint of uh, pain, especially if you're going to try to do it long term. Uh, I, I suggest uh, communication with your vet as far as what to get based on what kind of injury you might have. And, again, I think prompt care is very important. Let's say that the dog is, uh, or cat has been hit by a car, uh, and it's one of those things that sometimes you can't tell how serious it is for a little while, so you really need to take care what about uh, when you're transporting them? Again, maybe trying to wrap them up in, in a blanket or something to sort of immobilize them, or is that maybe making something worse than it might al already be? 
Well, I think a blanket is always a good thing. In fact, uh, a lot of people will keep a blanket in their car uh, or truck just because they may see an animal that's been hurt. Uh, certainly a blanket, a large blanket, depending on the size of the animal, uh, might help you prevent you from being bitten uh, if there's pain involved. And it certainly would give some comfort uh, to a dog or cat to be uh, gently wrapped up in a blanket. And then if it's, uh, if it's an overnight, there are a number of, uh, of sort of emergency rooms for pets. So that would be the route to go um, if, uh, if, if it's may- maybe after hours, I guess. Yes, and uh, there's some good, ex- excellent care uh, for, uh, for pets after hours. Uh, certainly, I hear complaints about the cost of uh, the after-hours clinics, but frankly, there's a lot of upfront costs that they have, but they are there 24-7, and that makes a lot of difference uh, just from the standpoint of your pet needs uh, care overnight. Uh, I know Mississippi State... Uh, runs the one uh, out on treetops in uh, and, and Flowood. Uh, and there's one in, in North Jackson as well. So, uh, yes, uh, those are available and certainly serve a need uh, when there's an overnight or after-hours type situation. And then if uh, we get the pets uh, to the vet, um, and, you know, I can't g- g- but sort of give us a general overview. How do you go about trying to determine what exactly has happened? Well, there's a lot of things that can be done, and a lot of it just depends on the general physical exam. Uh, blood work may need to be done just to uh, – maybe there's a case of poisoning or that sort of thing. So that needs to be – and, of course, the veterinarian – been trained in trying to identify um, these type things, uh, then uh, sometimes animals have to be sedated for an x-ray uh, simply because of pain. Uh, and quite often x-rays are done really trying to rule out, number one, if there's a fracture, but also sometimes foreign bodies occur. We, we see a wide range of, when I say foreign bodies, either toys, uh, bones, sticks, any type of thing you can imagine probably has been taken out of a dog's uh, gastrointestinal tract. Yeah, we once had a cat that uh, somehow swallowed a um, a needle with a with a thread attached, and uh, and actually started poking through his his uh, his uh, neck. And I think the doctor or the vet might have done a kind of an emergency uh, what do you call it, tracheotomy there, but that was. Uh, that was interesting. But so, yeah, you never know what our pets are going to get into. And I guess the, the takeaway, though, is if something like that happens and you don't know what it is, you want to get it to your vet or the emergency room as soon as possible. Yes. Speaking of the, uh, thread, the needle and thread, I guess it had thread on it. Cats are really enthralled by any type of thread. Uh, they will pick it up and hopefully a needle would not be on it. But at the same time, thread itself or string itself can cause a problem in the cat, and it may not pass, and actually it's, in a lot of cases it can cut into the intestine and cause a problem. So try to keep the uh, string threads picked up, uh, or your cat might ingest that. Very good. Good advice. Thanks for listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest for the day, Director Joe Spragans from the Mississippi Department of Marine Resources. 
So good morning, Director Spragans. Thanks for joining us. If you would, tell us a little about the work that you do and the work of the Marine uh, Mississippi Department of Marine Resources. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, our, our job is basically to enhance, protect, and conserve the natural resources of the Gulf of Mexico. And so uh, we spend our time basically monitoring the fish and uh, to seeing that we uh, don't overfish areas, our, our species, and we also look at uh, what uh, any type of invasive species is coming in. We watch for our, our grasslands, our marshlands, and uh, to be able to monitor them and make sure that they're not eroding away. And we also have invasive species that gets involved in that also. Uh, we work with monitoring the fishing. We set the uh, rules for different types of uh, fish, the size, the limit, and then uh, the time of the year that they can fish. And we also uh, have our marine patrol who watch the waters and keep everything safe for us. So uh, you mentioned fishing, and I think a lot of folks that live in Mississippi enjoy fishing, whether maybe in their own pond or in a public waterway. Do we have a great variety of fish that can be caught here in our state? We do. If you want to come inshore, you can get some spotted sea trout. We can get the redfish, the red drum, uh, south, our southern flounder, black drum. Uh, you got sheephead, triple tail, Spanish mackerel, white trout, mullet, uh, numerous types just inshore. And if you want to go offshore, we got the red snapper and cobia and uh, mangrove snapper. We have greater amberjack, uh, grave triggerfish, uh, king mackerels. Uh, we are uh, vermilion snapper and, you know, numerous other groups of snappers and uh, progies. So is there a best time of day for fishing? Well, it depends. You know, people have different things. Uh, a lot of people like to fish right before daylight and end up to around 10 o'clock in the morning. seems like that uh, that gives them a little bit of time to be able to catch a lot of fish. And uh, a lot of people like to go right before dark and uh, in sunset and then after that. Uh but then again, you know, it depends on what's going on. You can catch them in the middle of the day. So uh, it's it's hard to say is there a best time. But I would think most fishermen are going to try to get out early in the morning. Also, uh, especially during the summertime, you, you want to try to beat that heat, I guess. Oh, yeah, excuse Boy, it gets tough out there. And then most of the time the winds are calm in the morning a little bit. All right. Uh, so you mentioned the Department of Marine Resources covers Mississippi waters. Does that include our coastal waters? It does. It co- we cover uh, all salt water, anything to do with salt water, and we cover uh, basically anything uh, up to I-10, and uh, we consider that to be kind of a brackish water, like in our bays and all, and uh, so we cover that area also. All right, and so what about regulations uh, for saltwater fishing? Is it available year-round, or, or, or is there, are there seasons involved? There are seasons involved, Uh you know, it depends on, uh, on on the just to give you an idea, like uh, snapper fishing. You know, snapper seems to be one of the biggest uh, fish uh, as far as the people coming from different parts of the state to catch. And uh, snapper season usually opens around uh, Memorial Day weekend, and we keep it open till around the Fourth of July. Then we'll close it, and then we'll reassess it, and then try to open it back up for our fall season. So uh, that's that's one of the ones that basically has a shorter season than any of the others. And a lot of the seasons are set by according to what the uh, NOAA does. NOAA will set some of the seasons for us, especially like uh, the triple tail the, uh, and uh, amberjack and grouper and all. They will set that, and the cobia, they will set those seasons for us. 
And there are, are are seasons created to help manage the resources. I know that you said that's part of, of the work that you all do at the at the department. So is that to help sure that make sure maybe nothing gets overfished? It is, and uh, and also you don't want to you know you want to look at the spawning time and when they're spawning to not fish as much then in that time. Uh, these the the biggest you know usually we work off of an, off of an allocation, and uh, you know it would be like in the snapper or in the uh, uh, grouper or whatever we would work off an allocation of how many we could catch. And is there a best time of year for saltwater fishing? Year round. Okay. <laughs> you know what? That, you can fish year round for saltwater fishing. I mean, uh, yeah. You gotta you gotta catch the uh, the cobia and others probably during the later part of the summer and all, but uh, you, and it's due to where they're spawning. They come from the south around Florida, coming straight up the Keys, that uh, that area up the state of Florida, and then they also come over from Texas that area. But uh, they do a different as far as that. But uh, now I, uh, if you want a speckle trout this year round, and uh, if you want a red drum this year round. Uh, you know, it, there's a lot of fish that's there, uh, flounders year-round. So uh, it's not really any big big time. I mean, uh, whenever the most convenient for you. You might not know this, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but is Mississippi kind of known as, as a destination for fishing from p- folks from other states as well? It is. Uh, people come here because of a couple of things. Uh, you know, the uh, the Mississippi Sound is a little different than any of the other waters. If you take Alabama, Louisiana, Florida, and, Mississippi, and Texas, uh, and look at the depth of their waters, our waters are not as deep as theirs. If you go out to, you know, stay out to the islands, the Ship Island, that area. And, uh, you know, the waters in the Sound are kind of uh, shallow, which allow for a lot of uh, different species to grow that would not grow normally in the other areas or be as abundant in the other areas. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Today we're visiting with Director Joe Spragans. He's the director of the Mississippi Department of Marine Resources. We pause our discussion for just a minute for a phone call, and we invite a Walker from Carroll County into the conversation today. Good morning, Walker. You're on the air with us. Good morning. Good to speak with you again. I called last week about the velvet ant, which I released underneath the tree with some caterpillars. Hopefully she's up there eating away. All right. Very good. I have another question about another insect. I'm living in a cabin in Macaulay in rural Carroll County in the, the piney woods, I guess you'd call it, and I have a bug zapper hanging outside of my house that is zapping a lot of bugs. Um, and I have two questions. Well, one, there's a large green butter, not butterfly, moth with a you know, three- to four-inch wingspan that attaches itself to the outside of the zapper. It, it doesn't get in and get zapped, but it gets mesmerized and paralyzed and when it's released, it'll fly away. But I'm killing a lot of bugs. So I'd like to know what the green moth is, if you can identify it from that description. And also, am I taking food out of the mouths of my woodland birds by killing so many insects? Libby, any thoughts on that? Okay. First off, it sounds like you have a luna moth, right? Sounds It's a, it's a lime green color, uh, and I don't see them during the daytime, so it probably has yeah. something to do with the moon. And has tails on, yeah. has little cartel. Yeah, that's a luna moth. Aren't they gorgeous? They are. Per- particularly if you find it early in its life when it's just emerged. They're just uh, stunning. And I honestly 
don't know if you're taking food out of his mouth or not. I guess it, that would be hard to say this time of well, year. there's a lot of food around. And the frogs, uh, the toad frogs that are on the ground are loving. I dumped them out, and they've only been, you know, zapped and electrocuted, so there's no poison involved. So the, yeah. the, the toads are enjoying a, a feast every day. I have to clean the thing daily, otherwise it's a fire hazard. Oh, I wonder if the luna moth, it seems to be attracted to it. Is that what you're saying? I guess yeah, it's possible. Yeah, I think possible the ultraviolet that light that attracts, you know, flying insects attracts them off. It just can't get inside to where the grill is to sap it. Yeah, well, that's good that it can't get in there. And um, it might possibly, I'm just wondering if it's benefiting. If you're drawing in insects, it may be that it's trying to... Although, you know what, a, a, an adult luna moth is not going to need to eat those insects. I'm pretty sure. It's not eating now that I think, gosh, where's my brain? It's early in the morning for me. But, yeah, they shouldn't be eating. Uh, they're just basically, they're mating. They're looking for mates so that they can make new caterpillars, and then the caterpillars will be eating leaves. So um, I don't think they are going to need insects at all. Your birds is what um, might possibly have wanted the insect. That I guess my, why are you zapping the insects? Are you doing that to attract them so you can see them, or are you? No, no. I have decks, and I like sitting outside in the woods here, and uh, I just don't want to be bothered by the insects. That's that was my impetus, and then I, you know, enjoyed the the freedom of uh, not being bothered by insects. But then I started thinking about the other consequences of it. Mm-hmm. If it's, it's so, it's mainly mosquitoes that you're you're trying yeah. to get away. Yeah, right. well, Which I don't I can... like to be buzzed by any insect, but I certainly don't like to be bitten by one. Yeah, that's yeah. Um, I don't know. You, I guess you could experiment with it and see if you have more birds around when you don't use it. But that that would be the only way I would know about it. That's certainly a, um, a safer way for you and your pets and your birds doing it with that zapper than with poisons. Right. Well, uh, uh, I have hummingbirds, which I feed, and there's a pond here that attracts herons from time to time. And, you know, there are hawks and stuff like that, but they're crows. And I've got a whole variety, and I, I think there's probably enough food for them. But uh, yeah. The next problem will probably be I'm raising a whole bunch of frogs by feeding them. <laughs> There'll probably be a snake coming up from the pond to eat the frogs. <laughs> yeah, long. yeah. You've you've got to complete that food cycle once yeah, you get I, it. I don't want to be messing with nature now. <laughs> I do want to be comfortable in my hammock on my deck. You know, that's all of us nature watchers. It's how do you interface with nature enough to satisfy your curiosities without interfering with their life or um, having them interfere too much with yours. And uh, I, you just have to experiment in your yard and see what works for you, I think. Watching, and I appreciate you all identifying the velvet ant last week and the luna moth this week. All right, Walker, thanks for the call, getting an up-close view of nature at work there, so we appreciate hearing from you this morning. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and our guest for the hour, Director Joe Spragans of the Mississippi Department of Marine Resources. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. If you missed any of today's show, you can always subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app, or better still, Download the MPB Public Media app for your smartphone, then you get to listen to all or any of the MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. 
So, Director Spragans, we were talking about saltwater fishing uh, before the break. Um, is there a certain type of bait that works better when fishing in saltwater? Well, basically, uh, we we have bait shops here on the coast, and uh, if you buy from them, they can pretty much supply. A lot of pogies are used, uh, different types of uh, uh, fish that are used to be able to bait. We have, uh, depends on what you're fishing for, you know, uh, shrimp is good bait, uh, is always there, and uh, depend on what you're looking for. If you're looking for speckled trout, or if you're looking for to go out to the uh, snapper, you know, it's a different fish, but... Uh, you can get them at our, at our local places, and, uh, and I'd, I'd advise you to buy there because they're going to give you the best chance to be able to catch a fish in the Gulf of Mexico. And is it better to fa- uh, bait that be alive or dead? You know what? It can be either or. Uh, you know, you can fish, especially speckled trout. You can do different ways. And uh, uh, and a lot of offshore, I mean, a lot of, you know, when they're trolling, they do different types. But uh that's up to the per, up to the person fishing. I mean, it depends on what you're looking at too. Also, if you're trying to catch something big, or you know, uh, like a marlin or something, of course you're obviously going out south of here. You know, we, we've been talking about the abundance of fishing uh, possibilities for Mississippians and visitors to our state, uh, but also this helps the economy. We just talked about, as you mentioned, you know, there's those bait shops along the coast, but also uh, charter boats. Talk a little bit about that, if you would. Uh, we have quite, uh, over a hundred charter boats, and uh, and I tell you what, it is a great business, and uh, they offer a lot. They have the, you know just short trips of a half a day all the way to you know two or three day trips that they can take you out and let you go fishing, and uh, it is a great deal. Uh, every one of them are very versed at what they're doing, and uh, most people come out of there very happy, you know, after going to try to catch whatever type they're testing that day, and. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a very good uh, process for the state of Mississippi. Uh, brings in a lot of money, uh, obviously, to the state and also to the economy here. People stay overnight and, um, you know, stay in the hotels and uh, eat at the restaurants and shop at the stores. And uh, so uh, it works out very well all the way. Yeah, along the Gulf Coast, if, if you don't catch the fish, you can certainly go eat some somewhere from a number of the restaurants down on the coast. <laughs> oh, gosh, we got quite a few of them. And I tell you what... Uh, they uh, they serve fresh food too, and uh, you know it's fresh seafood, and uh, that's one of the things that we're pushing very hard right now. We're pushing hard with tourism and some other groups to be able to get the name of of uh, Gulf Fresh uh, Seafood back out. You know Mississippi Gulf Fresh Seafood used to be the we used to be the seafood capital of the world, and we're trying to get back to that point. And uh, the biggest thing is getting our name back out. Uh, a lot of imports. A lot of things are coming from imports from other countries, and uh, especially South America and all. And uh, we need to be able to get people to understand the difference in what they're eating. If they're eating an import shrimp or import fish of any type, they're not got, they're mainly farm-raised or, or either, you know, uh, some type of, uh, of a mass-going uh, procedure. And they're not, it's not the quality. They're not the quality that you're going to get of a Gulf Fresh. Right, yeah, you you cannot beat fresh seafood. That is absolutely for sure. So, if you would tell us about the tails and scales program, that's a program that in uh, 2016, Secretary of Commerce Ross uh, passed a Amendment 50 that said that each state could pick their could develop their own type of uh, system to be able to track the snapper that we catch. And so, Mississippi started one called Tails and Scales. And uh, Tails and Scales is where you basically, you can go online, everything happens uh, is online, 
and you go online and you and you with your cell phone or whatever, and uh, you log that you're going snapper fishing, and you get a tails and scales number. And then when you come back, you t- you have 24 hours to uh, finish the log out and tell them what you caught and uh, you know the amount of fish. That uh, that is a very good program. We're 98 percent compliant. And I tell you what, you told me anybody in the world that's 98% compliant in fishing, you're doing pretty good. And we know this very well because it is tracked more than one way. We track it because we look at the fish that you turned in, and then we also have Marine Patrol that are doing spot checks out, and we use that, and we go against what Marine Patrol sees when that person comes in with that same number, and we put that number in, and it uh, tells us that that person said they had six fish, and it comes back to the head six fish. And so it's working out perfect, and uh, it is one of the best systems in America. Uh, it has been noted even in national recognition and been given national honors for it. And again, that's to help manage the, the population of the snapper, right? It is. And, you know, we're, we want to have snapper. They, so back in the early 2000s, it was overfished, and Noah took over. And when they did, basically shut it down for years, and we only had small seasons. And now the snapper's back, and uh, we did a greater red snapper count this last a uh, couple of years ago. And uh, it came out that uh, they they were about three times the amount of snapper in the Gulf than, than uh, what Noah anticipated. So how is this year's red snapper season going? It's going good. Uh, you know, we fished to the first to the no, uh, July time frame and uh, basically caught and had, you know, obviously uh, – the effort is according to what the price it is to cost to go for people down there. And if fuel's $5 a gallon on diesel or $4 a gallon on gas, then, uh, you know, obviously it's going to make them be a bit less uh, chance of them traveling out there and spending three or $400 to go catch three or four fish. Uh, but uh, at, in 2020, you know, we had a mecca year when every, fuel was so low and everybody was uh, basically trying to find something to do. And that, we didn't make it through the month of June hardly before we ran out of uh, allocation. But that was, uh, weather was beautiful. Everything was working great. But we opened the season again back in September. And so uh, the 1st of September, and so we'll probably keep it open at least this whole month. So the season's going pretty good. We uh, we took a reduction in allocation this year through NOAA, but uh, we're working with them and trying to get some things worked out to where we can uh, regain that allocation. So we mentioned charter boats. What are some other ways that people could fish on the Mississippi Gulf Coast? Uh, you can. We got a lot of piers mm-hmm. and a lot of bridges that you can go to. You can just be near shore and you can you wade fish. You can wade fish basically in the sound here. It's so dang you know the water's not that deep. Uh, you got your bays and your rivers. Uh, we can go offshore. You uh, artificial reefs. We got uh, artificial reefs on the inshore and offshore. And uh, matter of fact, just sank two huge uh, pogey boats uh, that uh, Omega gave us. And we just put them out in FH-13, which is a big area that we have for artificial reef. And the water is 100-something feet deep, and it would be wonderful for attracting some uh, reef fish. So I, th- I think you read my mind because I was about to transition our conversation to those artificial reefs. Tell us, what, what, is, what is an artificial reef? Artificial reef is some structure. It could be uh, shale. It could be uh, some type of concrete. It could be anything that, uh, that we could put in the water. Uh, like I said, the big uh, vessels that we can put in the water to be able to build a structure for pe- for the fish to be able to go around. Fish like to get around structure, especially in the reef fish type. 
they like to find a structure of some sort which attracts the smaller fish also to give them an area to hide and attracts the bigger fish to be able to feed off of that. Uh, we uh, we have offshore, inshore. The inshore, you know, we got 63 of them, I think, right now that are what we call a low-profile artificial reef. And that's like limestone or crushed concrete or oyster shell or whatever that we have put out. And it's in average 6 to 12 feet of water somewhere in that neighborhood. And uh, usually run 5 to 10 acres in, you know, a size. And we also have built some keys, which are Katrina Key, if you can, uh, just south of uh, Deer Island. And we used the, uh, when the bridges were washed out during Katrina, we used all the concrete and everything from those bridges and was able to build two or three different keys to be able to work that off of. And so that worked great for us. Uh, We got 15 offshore locations that are uh, basically concrete rubble, uh, you know, steel vessels, barges, uh, prefabricated concrete. We uh, we do make uh, like a honeycomb type deals. It will be something maybe shaped like a pyramid that has different size holes in it to, and it will be concrete that will be seven, eight feet high and you can put it down into the, into the gulf and the fish have that to feed off of and hide into and, and work out of. Uh, those are those locations anywhere from six, probably 15, 16 feet to 150 feet. So, uh, and about eight, most of them are about eight acres uh, but, uh, you know, That'd be our smallest one, probably eight acres, and that and some acres up to almost nine thousand, nine thousand acres of, of a reef area. So we've got quite a bit, and that's great for your red snapper, your great trigger fish, your grouper, and that type. And then we also have what we say called rigs to reefs. Rigs to reefs is whenever these oil platforms decide they they want to, they you know, had their life expectancy and they're ready to do away with them. They basically sink the platform right where it's at. And they give us, they pay the state of Mississippi money to manage that. And so we use those, and they're 150 to 315 feet deep uh, in, that, in that area. And there's eight of those locations out in the Gulf. And once again, great for amberjack, triggerfish, grouper, snapper, that type. This is really a cool program because you take, as you said, you know, like concrete and then uh, some of the washed out bridges from Katrina, that sort of thing. So this is basically waste material and you're kind of repurposing it. So that really sounds kind of cool to me. How do you go about building something underwater like that? Well, it, you just, uh, you can take it, you know, obviously you can blow it off or you can take it and, and uh, use a scoop to scoop it off and put it in there, depending on what it is. But we can set a pattern and it's just like anything else. And, you know, you can let it down with cables and all if it's big, uh, big different types of pipes or anything like that, you can set it up and be able to just ease it down into the water and uh, and set it down on the bottom. And you know, uh, it, it's kind of like like you would build on the ground uh, ground here. You know, on uh, inland, you just figure out your pattern you want it, put it in there, and then go and set it out. And uh, you mentioned that this, you know, it attracts the fish. So this is uh, really, I guess, uh, something that fishermen look forward to and are, are benefit as well. I tell you what, the first thing they asked you is, "Where did you sink and where?" <laughs> and uh, you know, they want to know what they want to know about it. And uh, obviously, uh, like the two big boats we just sank, uh, probably some fish around it now, but it usually takes a year or so to form to get adapted to it. You know, they look at something in the water like, "What is this?" and they don't want to get around it. But then they'll start moving, Gordon, and uh, barnacles start building on it, and different things start feeding off of it. Uh, oysters will start growing on it, anything else, you know, uh, and uh, they, they food process. you got to get the food process there. 
So we talked a little bit about the artificial reef program in Mississippi before the break, but that's just one of the projects that MDMR is part of. Uh, if you would, tell us about fish tagging. Yeah, we have a sport tag and uh, release that, uh, that is funded through Fort Fish uh, Restoration, which is U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And uh, we uh, basically do tags for uh, cobia, tripper tail, spotted sea trout, red drum. And uh, we have some acoustic tags that we uh, are doing on red drum, cobia, and southern flounder. And we even have some satellite tags that we're putting on triple tail. And uh, very neat, uh, if you go online, I think it's on our, our website, you can uh, click on it and it'll basically talk about the triple tail and it'll show you where we release triple tails with satellites. And it shows them where they uh, tag on, shows where they go all year long, up and down the coast and uh, in different parts of the states, from Alabama to Mississippi to Louisiana and, and moving back and forth over toward Texas. So uh, w- why is it important to be able to track fish like this? Well, you want to know their, uh, exactly where the fish are actually moving. That's one. Number one, to understand their movement and understand what they're doing. And the uh, other thing is to be able to keep up with, uh, you know, it. How many of them are surviving? That's another thing. It can give us an idea because once we tag those fish, if someone catches a fish, like a cobia or whatever, with a tag on it, they can call us and report it. They don't have to throw the fish back. They can keep it, okay? But uh, but it's not that. It's just the fact that it's a tagged fish, and at least we know, and we know where the fish was and how big the fish was. They can give us some information on it. So, you know, we talked about uh, the tagging is, is kind of commonplace in, in wildlife, um, and it's always interesting to me to see how you go about tagging that. So what about with fish? Uh, how do you tag fish? Just tag them in the fin area or either in the back to, uh, part of the back of the area of the fish. And just run a little, it's just a little small tag that you put in there. It's, it's basically just slid in, and uh, it, it holds, in, uh, and it'll, uh, it'll stay with it. 99% of them stay on them. And do you stun the fish slightly oh. to put the tag in? No. Uh-uh. It doesn't hurt the fish at all. Okay. Um, so um, do we have any cause for concern for, for any of the fish population in Mississippi? Uh, no, I don't think there's any cause. I mean, uh, cobia seems to be uh, a little bit on the downside as, as to what we're doing, and amberjack, too, it, as far as gulf-wide. It's not just Mississippi. Mississippi seems to be holding its own. The big thing about Lycopia, Mississippi's on the tail end of the uh, food chain when it comes there because they're coming from the south end of Florida or either Texas and moving, migrating into us, and we're toward the end of it when they migrate. So uh, most of the fish are being caught prior to getting to Mississippi. Uh, So that's not the issue there. But uh, we always look at it. Flounder was an issue at one time. We just saw a big drop in flounder. We started doing some work on it, and um, just to give you an idea, too, we are working with USM and uh, being able to put out a flounder, and we're trying to do some with uh, Dr. Jim Franks and doing some studies and all with flounder of what we can do and, you know, what we need to as far as the population. We're starting to grow flounder. We're growing uh, speckle trout. We released about 250,000 of them the other day, about two inches long. And uh, so we're trying to get, uh, we do that at our fish hatchery, which is at Lyman. And uh, we grow those and we grow the uh, red drum and we grow uh, uh, flounder. We're looking at it now to be able to look at flounder and what we need to do to bring back that. But it seems the population's coming back. It's kind of like, you know, when we have some of the things that happen during the years, like a uh, bonnie carry, 
spillway that happened in 19 causes a lot of disruption in the estuary itself because not only, you know, a lot of the fish, the larger fish and all, they got away from it and moved away, but they didn't spawn as well. And then a lot of the smaller ones did die. And as far as your crabs and all, most of them got away, but some of them died. The smaller juvenile crab didn't make it. The oysters are pretty well wiped out, so they have to go back and regenerate, and we have to replant them. And then uh, as far as, uh, you know, shrimp, it, it did a number on a lot of the juvenile shrimp. And so we have to have that to be able to rebuild it and let the shrimp rebuild. So any time we have a disaster like we had in 2019 with that Bonnie Carey, and uh, that's the first time that I know of in the history that the Mississippi Sound from Pasadena all the way to uh, uh, Waveland was 0% salinity. So we talked about uh, tagging fish. Are there some other methods that uh, MDMR can use to track fish populations in Mississippi? Well, we do it. We do, uh, uh, you know, studies. In other words, we have um, we have uh, uh, scientists that are sitting at the do- at certain docks. They just go to different places and sit there. And when people come in, they ask them to let them see the fish. They're not trying to give them a ticket. They're not trying to do anything. They just want to look at it. And uh, they want to look at the fish and see what they have, and people will show it to them, and they are being able to get a survey then. And then we also do surveys in the state here. So um, is a fishing license required for saltwater fishing? It is. If you're uh, over 16 years old, it is required. And uh, that uh, you can uh, buy one. And if, uh, the good thing about it, if you're over 65, you can buy a lifetime for $8. And, you know, why I bring that up is when we talk about the fishing on the show, I always like to that because, the, you know, people might complain, oh, I've got to buy a fishing license, whatever. But the money actually goes back in and, and helps the fishing industry. Am I, am I correct on that? It, it goes 100% back to it. It goes back in to be able to help the estuary. Uh, and it's put into a fund that, that where we basically go back and spend the money to be able to uh, rebuild uh, marshlands or rebuild the fisheries like we're doing by putting speckled trout out and other types. So, um, got uh, about two minutes left. Um, If someone is listening and uh, wants to maybe help out uh, the MDMR with their mission, is is there the way that the public can get involved? Uh, The public can get involved at any time. And we have commission meetings once a month. It's usually the third Tuesday of every month. And... um, and then we uh, we we have that here, and also anytime. And uh, we're part of the Mississippi Wildlife Foundation. So if you'd like to donate to the Wildlife Foundation for fisheries, you can do that through that too. We're part of that uh, Mississippi Wildlife Foundation. All right. So, uh, needless to say, many many fishing opportunities uh, for folks here in Mississippi. And as you mentioned, this is a great way uh, to boost our economy, attracting uh, anglers from other parts of the country to come here and enjoy the great natural resources. Any last words? Anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to mention? No, just eat Mississippi seafood. Just make sure when you go to the restaurant, ask them, "Is this Mississippi seafood?" Uh, eat our seafood. It's the best in the world, and uh, you know that's how we get our name back out. And uh, come on down to the Gulf Coast, enjoy yourself, have fun. We've got a lot of uh, great fishing and other things to do here. All right. Uh, Just a reminder that if uh, you're ever out and about and you see something that you don't know what it is, maybe uh, a bird, an insect, uh, that sort of thing, if you'll uh, snap a picture of it uh, with your smartphone and send it to us, we'll see if we can't help you out and get uh, something, uh, some information to you. Just uh, send it to uh, animals at uh, mpbonline.org. 
Director Spragans, thank you so much. A lot of great information. Appreciated uh, you visiting with us this morning. And, and as I said, uh, go, go everybody and eat some fresh Mississippi seafood. Thank you. All right. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio with funding provided in part by listeners like you. To hear today's show or a previous show, you can go to creaturecomforts.mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Media app. Our show was produced by Abram Nanny, and our call screener today was Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, Joe Spragans, I'm Kevin Farrell. Stay tuned because up next, it's AutoCorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone.